coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, happy hump day to you. You hear it, don't you? The sinus thing is happening for me, and I'm fighting off the funk as much as I can. Like, I feel great. Uh, I'm just dealing with some of the sinus congestion stuff, and I, I think it's seasonal, but... Yeah, I think it's seasonal, because that's the only thing I'm really dealing with. Uh, I'm eating my pineapple, I'm taking the decongestant, uh, the, the, the what is it, the, the daytime stuff, and then the night. I'm, I'm doing all the things. I'm hydrating, still exercising, I'm out getting my son... I'm just dealing with a little bit of the uh, nasal blockage. What I'm not dealing with, however, well, yet anyway, uh, death threats and uh, racial remarks thrown at me. Who is dealing with that? Fonnie Willis. By the way, last weekend, Pride Weekend here in the city of Atlanta, and when Fonnie and her entourage of heavily armed guards made its way down the Pride Parade route, huge ovations from start to finish. My friend, who I believe was one of the judges at the Pride Parade, Tony Kearney, posted a photo of Fonny, literally flanked by two dudes, heavily covered in Kevlar, and, I mean, sporting some big old guns. And I'm not talking about the arms, I'm talking about the guns. Uh, in fact, we saw a, a little bit of that presence throughout the parade uh, that day from uh, our vantage point. I was actually in the parade driving a vehicle, and we saw a few fatigued and I don't mean tired, I mean like camouflage-fatigued, military-style officers throughout the place. I imagine most law enforcement agencies throughout the country where big events are happening uh, the past week or so have been on high alert with the ramping up of uh, rhetoric in the Israeli-Palestinian fight. But here in Atlanta, again, Fani has special circumstances that have her having some sleepless nights, I would imagine. Over last weekend, she had her 52nd birthday celebration with some uh, close friends and donors, and she was detailing some of the stuff that she deals with as far as the rumors that are thrown out there, and then we'll talk about the death threats after we listen to that clip. Take a listen to this. If you are a leader, you're going to be attacked. And so there are some days I'm human, and I'm really angry or I'm hurt that somebody would tell a bold-faced lie on me. I mean, I think the craziest is I was sleeping with a gangbanger. I'm like, a 17-year-old? Like, what? I like him old. You you have these personal moments where you're like, why am I being personally attacked? And all I'm out here trying to do is my job. And in the reading of that scripture, what it told me is you ain't special that if you are a leader and you are put in a position that people are going to lie on you and they're going to attack you, but you have to still do what is the mission. And the mission here is that we keep society safe, that everyone is equal, and that the law is protected. Now, to add to that, it was just 11 days ago that the Georgia Recorder reported that the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, said uh, earlier that week, that she had received an estimated 150 death threats over the last two months, and that make, and that that makes her worried that her life is at risk. During a Fulton County Commission meeting, according to the Georgia Recorder, Willis detailed the stress her staff and other county employees are experiencing because of the visceral reaction among Donald Trump supporters on his high-profile case. She noted that the threats are made through a variety of channels, including the county's customer service line, 
her office telephone, the magistrate court, as well as through text messages and other forms of communication, stating, the demands that I am putting on my staff right now to try to track down and investigate the threats, but also keep me alive, which has become a real concern for me. I have got to have people that are loyal to me and that my life means something too. Now, real quick, while we're on the subject of district attorneys and fighting crime, one of the principal arguments that the folks on the MAGA right, I wouldn't say all on the right, but on the MAGA right, have been rebuffing while we see Trump having to deal with court cases in New York and in Miami and in Atlanta and in Washington is that uh, these uh, special prosecutors or district attorneys are dealing with him instead of dealing with crime. Well, just this week, we saw an FBI report come out that showed that violent crime is actually on the decrease to pre-pandemic levels. Now, property crime, however, is on the rise. But crime in and of itself, especially the violent crime, on the decline. Jim Salter at the Associated uh, Press uh, reporting on this Stating violent crime across the U.S. decreased last year, dropping to about the same level as before the onset of COVID-19's pandemic, but property cries, uh, crimes rose substantially, according to data in the FBI's annual crime report, which came out on Monday. The report comes with an asterisk. Some law enforcement agencies failed to provide data, but a change in collection methods in compiling 2022 numbers helped, and the FBI said that the new data represents 83.3% of all agencies covering 93.5% of the population. Uh, article continues, by contrast, last year's numbers were from only 62%, 62.7% of all agencies representing 64.8% of Americans. Uh, diving down, violent crime dropped 1.7%, and that included a 6.1% decrease in murder and non-negligent manslaughter. Rape decreased 5.4%, and aggregated I speak for a living. Aggravated assault dropped 1.1%, but robbery increased 1.3%. Violent crime had also decreased slightly in 2021, a big turnaround from 2020, who was president then, when the murder rate in the U.S. jumped 29% during the pandemic. That created huge social disruption and upended support systems. Now, a reminder, you're going to, for the next, well, we're going to say 12 months because we're about 12 and a half months away from Election Day 2024, you're going to see a lot of saber-rattling and rabble-rousing from the right about crime and violence in blue cities, dim-run cities. That's been a crutch for them for quite a while. And how crime looks while under the Biden-Harris presidency. Just keep that in mind. That you're going to hear that, and we're going to give you the facts that crime has actually been decreasing since he became president, back to levels before when it peaked under his predecessor's administration. Richard Rosenfeld, according to the Associated Press, criminal justice professor emeritus at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, said the drop in violence can be attributed largely to the fact that the, quote, stresses and strains associated with the pandemic have abated. He says, by and large, what we're seeing is simply a return to something approaching normal after the big changes associated with the pandemic. Now, here's where you're going to think that I have swapped to join the conservatives and the Republican Party when I talk about these statistics. Despite the waning violence, property crimes jumped 7.1%, with motor vehicle thefts showing the biggest increase at 10.9%. The FBI said carjackings increased 8.1% from 2021, and the vast majority of carjackings involving an assailant with a weapon. Someone was injured in more than a quarter of all carjackings. 
It's not right. It's inexcusable. I'm not going to sit here and defend that. However, I am going to point out that when you deal with uh, crimes of theft, you are dealing with folks who are trying to bring income to themselves at the expense of other people, obviously. And again, not going to defend it. Not going to say that it's right. But folks who have opportunity, folks who have avenues to make themselves successful in a legal manner won't turn to crime. Again, I'm not one of those people, I'm not a bleeding heart where I'm going to sit here and excuse uh, petty crimes. Not going to do that. Shoplifting, uh, mugging, uh, carjacking, things like that. And it's, it's, it's inexcusable. It's uh, frustrating. It drives up our uh, insurance rates. If you're a business, of course, your, your insurance rates are going to go. Uh, car owners, if you live in the city, uh, I live deep in the heart of Atlanta, Old Fourth Ward. I know my car insurance is higher because I live in a major city in the center of said major city. Fortunately, I live in a building that is, knock wood, very secure, but it's a thing. And I see folks on social media complaining about carjackings and break-ins all the time. And I'm not saying that even my building's immune to it. Folks who park in visitor parking and maybe stay overnight, uh, you know, who have folks visiting here, sometimes their windows get popped and it's frustrating as hell. Not going to excuse it. The thing is, I failed to see where uh, an over-militarization of police forces or locking folks up for doing these crimes only to let them out again after they serve whatever time they're going to serve, however long you think that that is justifiable for them to serve that time. Once they get out, if there is no way for them to uh, rehabilitate themselves either educationally or occupationally and make a livable wage, what are they going to do? They're going to return right back to what they know to do before, and that's going to put them right back uh, in those garages and parking spaces and parking lots and popping windows or carjacking again. It's just a, it's a cyclical decline that we just, if systemically, societally here in America, we cannot seem to move ourselves past. And I literally believe it has everything to do with our inability to rehabilitate the person, not just while they're in prison, but after the fact. We let them out. We do not provide very many means of occupational uh, training. Uh, we do not provide, uh, even in this society, if you don't have a rap sheet, I mean, you've got to answer. That's another thing. you got to answer the question. Have you been convicted of a crime? Well, who's going to hire anybody that's been convicted of a crime? There doesn't seem to be that mechanism between uh, incarceration and then being released and then going back out into the real world and getting a job again where you have something that bridges that gap. We have a lot of tasks and jobs uh, that are uh, government funded, for example, that uh, we have needs for. And there should be, at least in my mind, the opportunity for folks to prove themselves. Uh, I don't know whether it's three months, six months, nine months, a year, whatever, maybe a year max, where the rehabilitated person gets to work for the city, county, state, whatever, uh, in a capacity where they work under some sort of, you know, stricter supervision, but also get paid for what they do. And yeah, I know it's taxpayer funded and you're kind of grousing about that. But if we're going to rehabilitate somebody, we're already paying all that money to imprison somebody in the first place. Why not give those folks who are trying to get themselves straight and back on the straight and narrow the opportunity to rehabilitate, not just uh, psychologically and mentally, but to rehabilitate their reputation so that 
they're able to go out and get a job and a job that they already have experience in while working in the realm for the, again, city, state, uh, county, whatever capacity that needs to be, whether it's working for a park service or sanitation or any of these needs where we see that we have shortcomings in services like 911 dispatch. Can we not train some folks to answer 911 calls? I mean, that is a, a valuable living. I mean, right now in the city of Atlanta, if you call 911 at the wrong time and the wrong time seems to be often, I've had to do it a few times myself. When you call 911, chances are you're being put on hold until somebody can answer. You're being put on hold on 911. Can we not provide an opportunity for those who are rehabilitating themselves once after serving their incarceration to fill these roles and better themselves in the process? Just a thought. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Wednesday. Vanessa McRae at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution breaking this story uh, late yesterday. An Emory University assistant professor placed on leave because of what they deem are anti-Semitic comments posted to a private social media uh, account. The statement Tuesday from Emory said, quote, We condemn such comments in the strongest possible terms and have immediately placed this individual on administrative leave pending an internal investigation. Now, the assistant professor in question is a Dr. Abir Abu Yabis, who works in the Emory Medical School's Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology. So, Dr. Abu Yabis told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution over the phone that she doesn't know the exact comments that led to her even being placed on leave, which she said made it difficult to respond to the situation, and Emory has not detailed what was in the post. The article goes on to point out that uh, Dr. Abu Yabas is a Palestinian-American and told the AJC that she has a track record of trying to build bridges, having served previously in a leadership role with an Atlanta group that brings together Muslim and Jewish women and in another Interface Women's Alliance. She also said that she was, until Tuesday morning, the co-vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in her department at the medical school and had been planning, quote, a healing circle event at work to give people a chance to talk about the war. Quoting, I was just working on that so people can understand each other and talk in a very safe place. That's me. And then all of a sudden, this morning, I realized that all of this has been going on while I'm actually taking care of patients. She said she's never advocated or endorsed any kind of violence. I'm a doctor because I want to help people. Uh, McCray continues writing in the article here, the Watchdog Group Stop Anti-Semitism and others have shared screenshots of posts they attribute to Dr. Abu Yabas and said they were upset by the comments. In a statement, Stop Anti-Semitism's executive director, Leora Rez, commended Emory for placing the professor on leave and called on the university to fire her outright. An Emory Winship Cancer Institute page with Abu Yabas' biography and other information was active until Tuesday afternoon when it was replaced with a message saying that the page has moved or been deleted. She started working at Emory back in 2018, according to the page. Uh, Emory's statements reads, As we navigate difficult conversations, our expectations is that all members of the Emory community continue to demonstrate empathy and treat each other with dignity and respect. There is no place in our community for language and behavior based on hatred, based in hatred, I should say, that incites violence and that is counter to the values that unite us as educators and health practitioners. Uh, more statements here from uh, Emory's Woodruff Health Sciences Center, 
We expect all members of the Emory community to treat each other with dignity and respect at all times, recognizing that each of us comes from different backgrounds and holds different beliefs. While I just about read the entire article to you, I will have that in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Kind of wondering if we'll ever get to see these screenshots that the folks at Stop Anti-Semitism put out, because now we're kind of left in this, well, who do you believe part? It seems as if Dr. Abu Yabis was making an attempt to create scenarios on campus where folks from divergent backgrounds could actually get together and talk this out, which is exactly what the situation needs halfway across the world and isn't happening at all. No, instead we're firing at each other. And even the hospital attack, there's questions about who caused that, although it would seem that uh, evidence indicates it was a self-inflicted and deeply, deeply deadly uh, attack on the hospital uh, inside Gaza. These are tense times, of course, for Jewish folks throughout the world. Also a pretty tense time for anyone with any Palestinian lineage as well. We're seeing a lot of pushback, a blowback for uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib in Congress just for having a Palestinian flag uh, outside her door in the hallway uh, at, at the office building there in Washington. And even right here in Georgia, the first Palestinian-American elected to the General Assembly, uh, Representative Ru Roman, who we've had on the show frequently, uh, was asked on the uh, this week's Politically Georgia podcast uh, her thoughts on even showing support for Palestinian people without seeming like she's lumped in with Hamas. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, like I said, I take my responsibility as state representative very, very seriously. And I've had some difficult conversations with those that do see me being a Palestinian as a painful thing for them right now. Mm. And I don't know what to say to that. Like the cruel irony is that, you know, those of us that understand what it's like to lose members in a conflict are on either side of this. Mm. Um, and so I just want to make sure like I talk about that because there, there is, there are real people hurting here at the end of the day, me being Palestinian does not mean me that I'm part of Hamas or associate with Hamas. And, you know, I've heard people go, well, you know, we need a statement condemning Hamas. And I'm like, I could tweet that I condemn Hamas every single day. And it's not going to make a difference because even when I was a child and I, and I'm not exaggerating when I say I was a child, I was in my driver's ed class. My teacher overheard somebody mention I was Palestinian and they pulled me out of class. That teacher pulled me out of class to interrogate me to make sure I'm not part of Hamas. So oh like, God. this is, sort of something that every Palestinian deals with, where even if we don't have family in Gaza, especially those of us that have family in Gaza and aren't associated with Hamas, those of us that have family in West Bank, Hamas doesn't exist there. And it's been such an infuriating element of this conversation because it doesn't capture who Palestinians are. It's That's the thing that gets the most attention, but that is not the Palestinian experience. That is not the, the full scope of the Palestinian community. That's, you know... It's just one of those things that's been really, really frustrating to me because I feel like there are people who can and should know better, um, and they're just choosing not to. Former Georgia Public Broadcasting GPB radio host Bill Nygut from Political Rewind with a follow-up that I thought was pretty prescient as well. Representative Roman, um, uh, let me follow up. Do you have family in Gaza? Certainly, I assume you, you've been talking to fellow Palestinian Americans who do have family in Gaza. Yeah. No, I don't. My family is in the West Bank. 
which, by the way, has had its own, you know, challenges. To be clear, it's not like the West Bank is a cakewalk. And over, and I never want it to seem like, you know, me providing explanations, and I want to be incredibly clear about this, an explanation is not a justification. Me providing an explanation is not a provided justification for what is happening or what is going on. But for the past, you know, long time now in the West Bank, you know, family members have dealt with violence from settlers. They've dealt with their crops being torched. They've dealt with, you know, just really, really, really awful violence that most people don't talk about until another big flashpoint happens and suddenly everybody wants to be an expert on the Middle East for the day. Representative Roman has been on this show uh, two or three times already, and I certainly appreciate that. She's a wonderful human being, I, I think. Uh, I've also uh, extended an invitation since the uh, Hamas attack. She and I, or her and her office and I, have uh, talked about getting around. She's been dealing with, and you can hear it in that conversation, she's been dealing with a little bit, probably the same side of stuff I'm dealing with, uh, a little bit of that and been under the weather off and on, and so we've been kind of putting things on hold, but we look forward to having her back in the very near future. All right, Georgia's dead last in what? You'll find out after the break on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. By the way, I, I meant to uh, squeeze this into last segment. I ran out of time. Uh, this is a pretty dismaying uh, display happening, and we've talked about this for months now. We've seen so much anti-Semitic uh, demonstrations and you know now vandalism here from 11 alive all right here's what's happening at georgia tech right now georgia tech police are investigating after they say someone vandalized a jewish fraternity over the weekend the men at georgia tech's alpha epsilon pi house woke up to find the words free palestine written on the front wall of their fraternity house a Georgia Tech police SUV was parked outside the fraternity house yesterday. And in a statement, the university said, quote, the safety and security of our campus community is of the utmost importance. Now, while I don't find the message itself anti-Semitic, I find the fact that anyone would graffiti it, permanently graffitiing it on a Jewish fraternity to be a form of anti-Semitism. Meanwhile, Fox 5 Atlanta reporting, and I uh, got this from uh, Yahoo.com. Georgia is now the worst state in the country, according to a study, for health care. There will be, uh, obviously, no press conferences at the governor's mansion for this, I would assume. Uh, the article begins, a new study say Georgians have some of the most challenges accessing much-needed health care in the country. Uh, the study done by Forbes ranks Georgia as the worst state for healthcare, with a 100 out of 100 score. According to researchers, Georgia ranks third worst in healthcare costs and has the third highest rate of residents who lack health insurance coverage. Medicaid expansion would take care of that. I believe we discussed that yesterday when we talked about the $11.7 billion surplus that the state is sitting on. I believe estimates were, and this was, I think, 2019 numbers, so it's probably a little different now, but estimates then were it would take about $350 million to expand Medicaid to cover all Georgians for the next decade. That's $350 million with an M, while we have a surplus of $11.7 billion with a B. Uh, back to the Forbes study. It found that more than 15% of Georgians have chosen not to see a doctor in the past year due to cost. Y'all, can I just tell you, I closed my show yesterday bemoaning the loss of uh, my, my good friend Ron, who uh, is in a couple of softball leagues that I play in, 
uh, played at various travel tournaments, not on the same team, but like in the same tournaments and uh, just an all around good friend. In fact, he's the reason I even stayed with adult softball here in, in the Atlanta area. Ron was very scared to be in a hospital, uh, 62 years of age. And he told me when I was taking him there, when he wasn't feeling well Saturday, that he hadn't been in a hospital since he was a baby, like when, since he was born. And it was, it was a lot to talk him into going to the ER or to an urgent care to figure out what was wrong. Well, I mean, he, he passed away Monday night. And, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and blame him. Obviously, he's passed away. But he had some underlying issues for the last few weeks that if he had just gone to see somebody, could have been dealt with. That's the sort. And again, I know it's 62 years of age versus 32. But still... Ron had a lot of tread left on his tire. That guy was fit as a fiddle for a man his age, playing softball at a pretty high level. Dude was like a chain smoker, literally just smoked cigarettes in the middle of the game if he needed to and was at all of our post-game, you know, beer functions and whatnot. I don't know how he did it, but he did, and it just, you know, defies logic that some people can do that. But still, dude was fit as a fiddle, and then one day he just wasn't. And it wasn't that he lacked health insurance. He had really good health insurance, actually. He just didn't like going to the hospital. Got to change that mindset. And whereas he had the insurance, how about all of those folks who don't? I mean, we we know the statistics about how so many Americans in this country uh, don't have uh, the ability to deal with an unplanned $400 expense. Well, I hate to tell you this, but a visit to the ER, a visit to an urgent care, at least a $400 expense in most cases. Anyway, it just sucks. Uh, Back to the article. Georgia also unfortunately ranks high on deaths due to kidney disease uh, with over 18 deaths per 100,000 residents and strokes with more than 44 per 100,000. Following Georgia on the list, these are states that actually fared better than Georgia when it comes to healthcare rankings, although they are among the worst. Alabama. North Carolina sort of surprises me because that's a a diverse and uh, I, I think a Fairly educated population. You think about the Research Triangle and, and Charlotte, the banking center. Um, so anyway, Alabama, North Carolina, Mississippi, South Carolina. Round out the bottom five. And by the way, in case you're wondering, uh, the report says Minnesota takes the top spot with the best health care in the country. Oh, uh, speaking of health care, uh, my city councilman, all-around good guy. I like him, despite his cup city foot. Uh, Amir Faroqi wants to end the mayor's ban on redevelopment of the former Atlanta Medical Center that Wellstar uh, had under their control here for many years in the old Fourth Ward area. Again, just a couple blocks from where I live. Donovan J. Thomas at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting that while Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens has confirmed his intent to extend Atlanta's redevelopment ban on the former AMC, uh, into next April, by the way, uh, Amir Faroqi said he believes that the moratorium has run its course and should be lifted. Uh, Faroqi is city councilman for District 2. Uh, and by the way, that includes parts of the former Atlanta Medical Center site. Anyway, Faroqi said there are concerns around the property becoming a blight on the community. He's absolutely right about that, by the way. Uh, it does no one any good to leave the land sitting vacant with a housing shortage ongoing and prices constantly rising. The Civic Center site has shown us how damaging a large, idle property is to surrounding neighborhoods. 
He revealed these thoughts, by the way, in a newsletter that went out to uh, folks who live in District 2. He also said the AMC parcels are ripe for mixed-use development, including affordable housing. I hope that we allow for that soon. Again, I'm going to point out, I live just a couple of blocks from the, in fact, I can turn around and see the the building. I can see the hospital building. I can see the uh, the doctor's office across the street, the parking deck, uh, nearby other offices. I mean, it's it's a valuable piece of property, but I, I'm a little concerned. In fact, I want to kind of pump the brakes on the, on the thought of yet another mixed-use development. I live in a building that is kind of a mixed-use development, and we've got another one that's coming in across the street behind the dog park. That will be apartments, uh, a public supermarket, I believe, is coming in, other mixed-use uh, retail. So there's a lot of that mixed-use already happening. And we have on the other side of the uh, Atlanta Medical Center, we have uh, other apartment buildings coming up, mixed-use development. What we don't see a lot of is, uh, first of all, affordable housing. Second of all, again, the need to, to fill the gap when it comes to uh, medical needs in this part of Atlanta. Uh, I want to take you back to an interview I had with yet another city council person back on September 25th. Wellstar, the Atlanta Medical Center. Right. Uh, no one seemed to notice that Wellstar and AMC was about to close, leaving Grady as the only level one trauma center uh, in the region, which is absolutely dangerous uh, and uh, a homeland security issue for our city, given the size of our city, having one level one trauma hospital. So, mm. again, the constituents have been failed. That is Atlanta City Council person Keisha Sean Waits, who joined us again on September 25th. And she actually has floated since the idea of turning the former Atlanta Medical Center uh, into uh, a mixed use, but uh, in a different sort of capacity. Uh, WXAATE. TV 11 Alive with this report two days ago. We are approaching one year since the closure of Wellstar AMC. And today, members of the Atlanta City Council were set to vote on whether to continue a moratorium on development, ideas for the campus, and a group to do a study. Yeah, Teresa Bulls is joining us live right now at City Hall. So, Teresa, we are learning that this vote never happened today. That's right. The committee, I mean, excuse me, the council decided to send the resolution back to committee. It never made it to the floor, and there's no clue on what's next for that development. Some in the neighborhood have told me that they're tired of waiting, as city leaders have had a year to figure out what to do next for the campus. Mm -hmm. In November, it makes one year since Wellstar AMC closed its doors. The city instituted a moratorium in September, soon after Wellstar announced the closure, then another in April of this year. The AMC is in the old fourth war community and has been a cornerstone for vital medical needs as a level one trauma center and city leaders are trying to figure out the best option on what to do next. Councilwoman Keisha Waits suggested a wellness center to provide affordable housing, transitional housing for the homeless population and drug, alcohol and mental health services. Justin Hershatter says he'd support that but feels waiting another six months for it is too long. And He's right. And actually, as a resident of this neighborhood, I have to agree. And listen, there's going to be a touch of nimbyism. I know this because I know my neighbors. There's going to be a touch of nimbyism. Well, we don't want a wellness center with homeless people. Listen, you already have homeless people. Do, do, you want them, do you want them in a building? Do you want them with an opportunity for rehabilitation, for uh, uh, the opportunity to kind of get themselves right and, you know, back in some capacity uh, contributing to society? Or do you want them living under the overpass two blocks away from where you live and, you know, being a blight on where you live and affecting property values in and of itself? 
Nope, nobody wants the uh, the methadone clinic, you know, in the strip mall next to their uh, gated community subdivision. But do you want people to get better, or do you want them to just again be a walking blight uh, in your area of town? And can I just tell you, there just seems to be this disconnect between the mayor's office and council chambers too. You would think that if there was something brewing, maybe there was a, a another medical provider looking over the property. Well, first of all, we'd see signs of that. We don't. Uh, or that the mayor was negotiating with somebody, whether it be Piedmont or, or Grady, to, to expand their campus uh, across the downtown connector interstate highway. You would think that someone in council might know that to be able to sort of nuance whatever this decision on the moratorium would be. And yet they, they just they put off the vote two days ago. And, and, and again, you've got uh, council member Waits who has floated one idea. You've got uh, Amir Faroki from District 2. Part of the campus uh, is in his district, seeming to think that it's time to, to punt on any notion of uh, a medical facility and just go with development, mixed use. And listen, again, anything beats blight. Don't get me wrong. But we've already lost uh, a CVS. Now, again, we're supposed to get a Publix, but not in the same spot. We've lost a CVS. So right now, for the foreseeable future, and I don't think this new development with the, the Publix is coming in the next six months. Anyway, for the next six months, we're going to be stuck with uh, another multiple block black hole, as the uh, the man on the street who talked to a reporter at 11 Life said, where we, we don't have something walkable for retail outside of a convenience store. And listen, I don't feel uncomfortable going to a convenience store if necessary. I've been to that convenience store a couple of times, walked in. I think I just needed a soda while I was getting some gas. And it's two blocks to that one or two blocks to the other one uh, down Boulevard. And they're just about as safe. But there are going to be folks who are not as comfortable stopping at a convenience store in the middle of the city, dealing with folks who are panhandling. And again, that's, that's just a fact of life in the city of Atlanta. It's something that, you know, I used to be aesthetically you know, sort of uh, chafed by at every intersection, major intersection in the city, you've got folks panhandling for money. You get off an interstate, you got somebody panhandling for money. You go to a convenience store, you got somebody panhandling for money. And uh, listen, I don't, I don't carry cash. And it's not that I don't carry cash for that reason. I just don't carry cash. It's 2023. I don't carry cash anymore. But there are folks who are uncomfortable going to a convenience store. And when you've left a CVS now out and you're dealing with another moratorium that looks at us not having anything even on the drawing board at least until the end of April, start of May, for a big chunk of valuable property uh, in Old Fourth Ward, Atlanta, which is a booming area of the city. I just think you're you're inviting the perpetuation of a problem that, again, has been going on, as we mentioned, at the Atlanta Civic Center site, by the way, since 2015. The Civic Center site has been dormant, owned by the Atlanta Public Housing Authority since 2015. There was an article uh, in Atlanta Magazine uh, last year, I want to say, that talked about some ideas on some things that are going to happen. Uh, things are looking brighter for the aging new formalist landmark. The Atlanta Housing Authority, which purchased the sprawling facility from the city in 2017, has outlined a plan to preserve and update the historic auditorium while transforming the surrounding complex into a mix of affordable and market-rate housing, retail, and shared life space. Uh, that sounds great, and that's precisely... I and mean, look, another, like, a 4,500-seat venue uh, inside the city. Like, great, we need stuff like that 
Uh, I'm sure the Fox Theater might disagree, a little competition for them. But in that area of uh, downtown Old Fourth Ward, Atlanta, again, you're just looking at a big blighted spot. And here we are maybe on the precipice of getting rid of one while holding on to another. It, it starts to, to, to give the reputation for the area that this is an inhospitable place or a place where nothing seems to get traction. And maybe it's the Civic Center site where you have the uh, floated idea that Council Member Waits has for the Atlanta Medical Center site. I, I don't know. I don't know the answers. I do know that we've got these two large parcels that are going unused, uh, underutilized. And uh, while we have plans on the books or drawing boards or wish lists or whatever for the one, for the other, we're sitting here waiting again until next April when it'll be 16 to 18 months since Wellstar pulled up stakes and left the city. I just, at this point, like, if wishes and butts were candies and nuts, we'd all have a fantastic Christmas. We're all waiting on another medical entity to come in and take over Wellstar, uh, the former Wellstar spot. I just don't see it happening. And I don't see any smoke that tells me that there's a fire brewing in that cauldron to begin with. More Ron Show after this breaking news today in the Natalie Holloway case. We do have that after the break on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment for the Ron Show for Wednesday. Man, I've got a lot of stuff. I've got tabs open all over the place. What do I need to be doing here? Do I have stuff like saved up that I need to get to that I haven't gotten to in a while here? Uh, let's see. Oh, I, I wanted to point this out a few days ago, and I just have been so busy otherwise. How about this? Coca-Cola and Absolute Vodka uh, are teaming up for a canned Sprite cocktail line. Okay. Uh, Atlanta-based Coke, French wine and spirits giant uh, Pernod, Ricard, and Absolute in Sprite will be available in Europe. Oh, man. Europe. Anyway, that'll be uh, early next year. Uh, Sprite, Sprite Zero Sugar versions will be available. The beverages will debut in Europe, including in Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, and the United Kingdom. They have not announced a U.S. launch date. I'm not really a like a Sprite mixed drink guy, but I mean, I do, I do like a Sprite occasionally. I don't know. I was pretty excited about that until I saw that it was just going to be Europe. I, I, I don't know. I saw it was noteworthy because we, uh, of course have Coca-Cola right here in our midst. Uh, how about this bombshell that we seem to finally have an answer now from the Natalie Holloway, uh, situation. Finally, it seems we have an answer when it comes to what happened. Today, I can tell you with certainty that after 18 years, Natalie's case is solved. That is Natalie Holloway's mom at a press conference earlier today. This from Court TV. As far as I'm concerned, it's over. It's over. Yaron Vandersloot is no longer the suspect in my daughter's murder. He is the killer. In the course of his felony prosecution, here for extortion and wire fraud indictment, he gave a proffer in which he finally confessed that he killed Natalie. He described when and how he killed her. He said that after killing her on the beach in Aruba, he put her into the water, and that was the last that he ever saw her. That was all verified by a comprehensive and conductive conclusive polygraph test. Even with this confession, though, he can't be tried here for Natalie's murder. But I'm satisfied knowing that he did it. He did it alone, and he disposed of her alone. I won't give you the details of his brutal confession. Those will be forthcoming when the proffer is made public. 
You will also have details of the plea agreement which was reached, his sentence of the extortion, and the wire fraud will run concurrently with a sentence in Peru for killing Stephanie Flores. And that's fine with me. Thanks to a lot of very smart and dedicated people here, I got the answer I've been searching for for the past 18 years. Yaron Vanderslut's confession means we have finally reached the end of our never-ending nightmare. And for me, reaching the end of the nightmare, being over is better than closure. It's been 18 years since Natalie disappeared, and Natalie would be 36 years old today. I still miss her every day. It's been a very long and painful journey, but we finally got the answers we've been searching for for all these years. We finally, today, we got justice for Natalie. So thank you all so very much and being supportive of us in our long 18-year journey. Thank you. We sleep well. I mean, this has been the most unimaginable journey, and, and I know everyone has been with us on this, and, and we are so appreciative of it. But for us to finally put this to rest and being over, as I said, it's better than closure because our never-ending nightmare had to end. And we are so grateful that we can say that today, that it is over. Is getting justice for Natalie. Just an incredible story uh, that we, uh, like she said, uh, that's uh, uh, Natalie's mother. We've been following this story for nearly two decades, and her killer finally confessing. Although he won't be tried for the murder, it was in the extortion case that he was extradited here to the United States for that he confessed. He had been accused of trying to sell information about her remains, the location of her remains, to her mom, Beth, who we just heard there, in exchange for a quarter million dollars. I mean, what, an, what a monster. To First of all, having disposed of her body or confessing to having disposed of her body by putting her in the ocean. I don't... I, I, how he made sure that her body would never wash up on shore again, I don't even want to begin to speculate about, but that he knew that if that is the case and was still looking to turn around and profit off of letting Natalie's mother know, at least know where the remains were to score 250 grand. Ugh, what a monster. Y'all, I am no parent. I don't have kids. Uh, I don't have daughters, <laughs> you know, I, I, I have a hard time letting people cats it without me scrutinizing them being around my pets because, I know, first of all, I know Herschel loves everybody and Dooley loves no one except her dads. But I, I will say this. If your kid is trying to talk you into going away on their own with their friends, they're going to be with friends uh, for spring break or summer vacation, especially. in fact, it doesn't even matter where, if it's national or international, uh, Brittany Drexel, if you haven't heard of that case, I lived in Myrtle Beach for 11 years. The Brittany Drexel case went unsolved for, I don't know, damn near a decade, it seems like. She met up with some people uh, and got in a car with a stranger, and I'm sure he was a nice boy until he wasn't a nice boy. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 
there was some sort of a, a ratting out or a confession of some sort where it turns out um, she was probably sexually assaulted and then, quote unquote, done away with. And I mean, you hear grisly, you know, horrific stories about, you know, fed to the gators and so I mean, just awful stuff. Y'all don't let your kids travel on their own like that without some sense about them, you know, a parent into, I, you know, I know I sound like a lame for that. And I know there's going to be some under 21 types are going to be like, oh, come on, Ron. I'm just telling y'all it's, it's a dangerous, creepy world out there. And a, a handsome dude like Joran Vandersloot can talk a pretty girl, a, you know, a handsome guy into just about anything. It's just you know, be safe out there. It's going to do it for the Ron show back tomorrow, five to 6 PM on the American one radio app, American radio.com or wherever you podcast show notes. We got them. Ron show ATL.com. Have a great one.